Hello, and welcome to Lots and Familiar, the show that remembers that the Cadbury's Fuse Bar was launched on, quote, Fuse Day 24th of September 1996. I just took me two goes to say that because it's so ridiculous. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is writer Hilary Rachel. Hilary, what you're to, where can we find it? You can find me on Twitter, it's probably the best place, and it's at Hilary Machel, which I should say has one L for Hilary, unlike Clinton, and two L's for Machel, and no T in the middle that some people like to sometimes put in. So, uh, Hilary Machel. Well, there's actually a confusing L in the title of your first choice, which I'll come back to. Let's just have a listen to the theme music first. <laughs> Okay, the very, very squelchy theme that's burned into my memory from a very long time ago to Noah and Nelly in the Skylark. Hilary, who were they and what was the Skylark? The Skylark was, I suppose, based, well, in fact, definitely based on Noah's Ark. And it was a children's cartoon, which I remember to some extent, although I wonder if what I remember more is my Noah and Nelly in the Skylark pillowcase, which I think I had probably into my late teens and and may well still be hanging around at my mum's house. It was a children's cartoon based on Noah's Ark. So we've got Noah and Nelly, Nutty Noah, as he is often called in the programme, who live aboard their Skylark, which of course can not only float on the sea, but can fly, it can go underwater. Sometimes if it's flying, it's been carried by balloons or its figureheads have been turned into snorkels. It might roll on some wheels across all kinds of different rather surreal landscapes. The animals on the Ark, instead of being in pairs, each animal is a single animal, but with two heads two faces, a bit like the push me pull you from Dr. Doolittle that some people might remember. I was also a big Dr. Doolittle fan as a child. The books, that is, rather than the film. And each animal has one smiley, happy, optimistic face and one miserable, depressed, pessimistic frown face on the other side. I love the names, actually. So they they give it a sort of singular name, but then they use a plural. So you've got Humphrey the pigs, Maureen the giraffes and Ahmed the camels. And the ship itself actually has a happy end and a miserable end. It reminds me a bit of the Yellow Submarine. So they're small, five-minute, very surreal cartoons. And they're from the Range Calvary and Bob Godfrey stable, who made Rhubarb and Custard, which is obviously very well known, and Henry's Cat later on. I was a bit too old for Henry's Cat, but Rhubarb and Custard I have very fond memories of. And like Rhubarb and Custard, it's narrated by Richard Briers. And the voices of the animals are by another voice artist called Peter Hawkins. And he gives each animal a, a different voice. So they're really lovely little things. So every episode, at the beginning of the episode, Nutty Noah consults for some reason a map which is completely blank I've no idea why. It just has a little north, south, east, west symbol in the corner and he decides where they're going to go. And then the theme music comes in for probably 20 seconds and and off we go. So they arrive in all kinds of different places, meet all kinds of odd creatures. I should say Noah and Nelly are always wearing a kind of giant yellow sou'westers and Noah has a huge ginger beard and Nelly has, for some reason, a shed load of blue hair. Perhaps this was an inspiration for Marge in The Simpsons many years later. So you can barely 
rarely see their faces and Nelly is perpetually knitting. So she's often sort of surrounded by this endless stream of wool. She seems to have an inexhaustible supply of wool. So each episode, they find themselves somewhere different. Perhaps they walk into a world where there are depressed televisions because they're stuck showing the news. And so they're getting <laughs> bored. The one I like is they arrive in, they think they've gone into the future, but they've somehow managed to travel into the past. So here we go. There's a whole fourth dimension going on here. And of course, in a cartoon, you could do anything. And in a children's surreal 1970s cartoon, you could definitely do absolutely anything. So they arrive in the Stone Age and there are some stone statues who are very miserable because they want to move into the future. They're completely stuck. So Nelly, it has to be said, is always the brains of the outfit, frankly. So she always comes up with a solution to the problem, often with the help of the animals. So, for example, on one occasion, they land somewhere and find some very depressed umbrellas. And the umbrellas are depressed because they haven't had any rain for a long time. So Nelly's solution, of course, is to knit a water well. And then the elephant, who I think is called Rosie, Rosie the elephants, suck up all the water and create rain for the umbrellas. The umbrellas, it has to be said, are down because they haven't been able to go up because there's been no rain. Yeah, it's hilarious. And of course, every time Noah's read the map and decided where they're going, he shouts all aboard the Skylark, all aboard the Skylark. And off they all go. The solutions that Nelly comes up with are fantastic. There's always a knitting solution. Sometimes she runs out of wool and has to take apart sails, I think. But generally, her supply seems to be inexhaustible. So with the stone statues... Nelly's solution to that is to knit some instruments which the animals all play and they play for some reason the music of 1923 so statues from the Stone Age can move into the 1920s. Well there was a lot of really weird animations that went into because this was in that slot just before the news on BBC One wasn't it where it's a really weird way that they used to end the children's schedules where they'd have a silly surreal funny cartoon just Mm. before the news you know which in those days was about things like Georgi Markov being assassinated with a poison tip umbrella. Yes Hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper, and in between yes. the two of them, you get there'd always be a public information film, but not one of the ones that was for children. It'd be the one I always remember it being. Is that <laughs> one about if you're pouring petrol on a boat, don't spill any of it and then set fire to it? You know, the exploding <laughs> boat on the water. Yeah, it's really relevant to children. Yeah. <laughs> but you've had these crazy cartoons just before that, and a lot of them caused me a bit like this did some kind of existential angst because the ones I really remember are there was Ludwig, which is the sort of robotic Christmas line kind of oval that played the violin and it was all a bit cold war you know there was, oh yes there was a yes. like a bird watcher watching him do binoculars and all these mysterious animals that they might tell on him i think my mum was keen on ludwig because it they was playing beethoven so i think yes. she thought this yes. was probably good for me you know <laughs> there was also the perishers who obviously you know i yes. liked them i thought they were funny but i could not understand where they came from who they were why no one was supervising these children well those perishing kids there were quite a few cartoons like that i wonder what the rationale was for choosing them for this pre-news slot was it trying to appeal to adults because this had a bit of topical satire in it sometimes about ironically things like the eu and so on or the eec rather it was in those days it would have been the eec in those days i can remember the eec being covered extensively in schools music programs as a child of the 70s normally we had to at my school i went to a little c of e primary school which is a whole nother story the girls had to do country dancing while the boys got to do football so let's just say, you know, I knew which one I wanted to do and it wasn't the country dancing, but <laughs> no, I never got to do it. There always seemed to be lots of dancing to folk music and then somehow related to the EEC. I've absolutely no idea how. I think possibly this is a very confused attitude to the EU, which may well have led to where we are now. Who knows? The T 
daytime cartoon I really remember actually was Willow the Wisp with Kenneth Williams playing the Wisp and Evil Edna, the kind of evil TV set, which again was quite ironic because it was almost as the subtext of that is that actually stop watching television, go for a nice walk in the countryside and commune with nature. Yeah, of course, you're sat watching television, a bit like Why Don't You, of course, saying, you know, yes. just switch off the television and do something less boring instead, which of course we never did. And it was boring. Why Don't You was incredibly dull. But Noah and Nelly in the Skylock has kind of been a bit forgotten, especially compared to Rhubarb and Henry's cat and Definitely. I wonder if it's because they only showed it for a couple of years yes. and it was always a bit there's something that didn't quite stand out about it in terms of for some reason in my head as a child it's always mashed up with the shipping forecast because we were quite often have Radio 4 on in the kitchen for some reason mm. only the kitchen yeah I think probably immediately after that I'd been on and I'd run away from the public information film the shipping forecast would be on and you know I kind of always pictured Noah and Nelly but I think there was a Ross Frozen Foods advert that ripped it off as well oh really no now, now I don't remember that at all. But I think it's kind of faded into the background because, you know, that lack of exposure and that confusion with definitely. other things. It's definitely not one that people talk about like they talk about the Magic Roundabout or, as you say, Rhubarb and Custard or any of those ones that seem to be better now. Now, I had pretty much forgotten about it and then it sort of suddenly popped into my head. And it was the pillowcase. I think if I hadn't had that pillowcase for so long, which had kept its crisp, lovely colours, it was a beautiful drawing, really beautiful drawing, double-sided. There was something happening on one side and something happening on the other and it certainly had the phrase all aboard the Skylark on it. I think I probably would have forgotten it entirely. Was it the happy faces on one side or the grumpy faces on the possibly, other? Possibly, possibly. Next time I go to my mum's I am going to have to go and have a big search through the airing cupboard and see if it is still there because it was too good and I'm sorry that my son is now in his mid-teens. I'm way too old for it frankly because if he was much younger I'd be forcing it upon him, you know, just like I tried to make him watch Eye of the Engine as a young child and he sort of got it a bit but you know on YouTube and a bit scratchy it's not quite the same really it's not quite the same experience and of course you know he has 24 hour access to television children's programs which of course we didn't have I'm sure you've had this conversation with plenty of people you know it was a couple of hours in the morning and an hour and a half in the afternoon and you couldn't just switch on and see children's cartoons or other children's programs whenever you liked there's that whole thing I'm sure about the fact that you know children never get the chance to get bored anymore because there's always something to watch or something to look at on the internet something to do and I think frankly I benefited from those hours and hours and hours of creative boredom in my childhood. Well, we're not moving that far from that pillowcase for your next choice, which is a spin-off related to another programme from the same time slot for around the same time. It's a very specific item of merchandise. I'm just going to play a clip and you'll figure out what it's related to. Let my imagination take me away. That was, of course, the Wombles with Wombling White Tie and Tails, a song that I'm convinced inspired Transmission by Joy Division, but let's not argue about that. <laughs> 
the whole Wombles phenomenon was huge. Hilary, what part of it do you specifically remember? Well, I remember watching the Wombles very well and coming from sort of South East London, not actually that close to Wimbledon, but Wimbledon was a kind of very much a, a real place. And in fact, I did have a conversation with my son recently and mentioned the Wombles and mentioned Wimbledon Common. And he said, oh, well, it was made up, wasn't it? I said, what do you mean? The Wombles? He said, no, Wimbledon Common. I'm like, <laughs> no. No, Wimbledon Common is a real place. He's not doing geography GCSE. There's probably a reason for that. Anyway, the item I remember, and I think they were probably, I'm, I'm sure they must have been made for different rooms. They were T-shirts for young children, and they were, I'm pretty convinced, 100% nylon. There was a lot of static electricity going on, and I expect they made them with Paddington Bear on or the Magic Roundabout or whatever. But the one I remember was a blue one, and it was a Wombles T-shirt. And the entire front panel, right up to where it meets the sleeves, was a pre- of a scene from the Wombles. Sadly, I can't remember what scene it was. I'm sure it must have had the Wombles in the Wombles typeface, you know, something typically 70s, you know, a bit bulbous. You know the sort of thing I mean, a bit bulbous and bubbly. The thing I really remember about it actually was, I think I had several of these t-shirts, probably for different programmes, but the blue Wombles one really stands out. And I can remember spending an afternoon in our garden, really hot, sunny, sort of height of summer. By that stage, I would have been about six or seven. And I'd become what in those days was known as a tomboy and I decided that this t-shirt was no longer cool so obviously with the logic of a child I wore it back to front so that the plain back panel was at the front and obviously nobody would be able to see the picture that was actually behind because obviously nobody would be looking at my back so that (laughs) bizarre kids (laughs) logic there really and then what I then remember was going inside actually and it being a Saturday afternoon and watching there was a pop music program on BBC again at sort of tea time probably about half five with of course the inevitable 70s stars of show waddy waddy and gary glitter i remember that really really vividly and i cannot remember what the program was called or anything more about it actually except that it absolutely lives in my memory as that afternoon wearing that t-shirt wearing it back to front and probably being by six or seven probably thinking yeah i was a bit too old for the wombles really but my mum would have been you know getting as much wear out of that t-shirt which was probably bought in littlewoods i would say possibly bhs i don't think marks and sparks would have gone down the road yet of branded t-shirts and tv tie-ins that would have been probably a little bit lower class for them so yeah i suspect bhs or litterwoods was the source of that and we probably had half a dozen of them in different colors my sister would have had a pink one because she was quite a pink girl but i would have objected to pink even at that very young age anything pink or involving having to wear a dress was just not my style have to say first of all that when you initially mentioned this to me you said you've worn it backwards for some reason i interpreted that as being inside out so you know oh, okay. probably say selbmo instead of wombles just didn't think of that but perhaps <laughs> that's what i should have done that would have been the answer actually because i mean how the logic of a child of thinking well actually nobody can really see my back if i wear it <laughs> back to front they'll just see the plane on the front is bizarre those t-shirts have completely disappeared now i mean you don't get that you only get kind of cotton t-shirts with a print on now what happened to those nylon t-shirts and when they fell from grace and they were replaced with there was probably a point when they discovered they could print that kind of screen printing on cotton became a, a bit of a thing and it was probably cheaper and easier to do than these nylon t-shirts i mean how they produced them because they must have knitted that picture somehow could it have been a print i've no idea i've no idea how they produced them somebody who knows about textiles would have to explain that to me well i started off thinking that oh there were less of these in those days you know, there were less tiny things when i think back mm. i just remember for all kinds of things 
things. T-shirts being everywhere, kids' T-shirts. You know, I thought, what did I have? Well, for a start, I don't remember this. There were photos of me very young with a Captain America T-shirt on. Ah, okay. The one I really remember was it was actually long-sleeved, but it had Mickey Mouse's face on. This was when I was really young, but it had sort of lenticular <laughs> eyes that moved oh. as you looked at them. And the thing I remember mainly about it is being very unhappy about the fact that I was always made to wear it for birthday parties, and I didn't like the fact that girls would come up and prod the eyes. And <laughs> I bet them. you did. And then when I was a bit older, I thought, why did I object to that so much? <laughs> <laughs> I can see why they might have taken them off the market, actually. <laughs> but the Wumble Mania of the 70s was quite a thing oh, to the extent huge. that I was thinking about. You know, you had, aside from just things like this and toys and so on, there was the TV series, there was the records, there was the Absolutely. film Wumbling Free, which is a mess, but it exists. I don't remember the film. It has Bonnie Langford in it. Well, that tells you what you need to know, really, doesn't it? <laughs> but the original books felt a bit like an afterthought, almost. So I remember reading them and thinking, this isn't, you know, this isn't the it's Wumbles true. I know. What's going yes. on? I mean, my introduction would definitely have been the TV programme because I'd probably been watching that from the age of three or four. And I did read some of the books like when I was a bit older. Elizabeth Beresford is the name that's coming to me as the author. And yes, I think they probably were a bit different. Of course, the other thing is about the Wombles. And I think why they had a big impact was obviously they had the hit records of these poor guys dressed up as Wombles on top of the pops, you know, in a boiling hot studio. It must have been a nightmare. But also that I think that idea of Wombling sort of went into the culture in that when I was a brownie and a guide and you finished your camp or, or your visit or your day out, you would go Wombling. So whichever area you'd occupied with your packed lunch or whatever, you would all stand in a row and you would walk down and you would pick up any litter. And that was Wombling because, of course, that's what the Wombles did. They cleared Wimbledon Common of all the litter. They were probably used by the Keep Britain Tidy Camp pain i'm guessing i'd be surprised if they weren't but yeah i mean the wobbles i think still really stand the test of time actually i watched them when my son was a toddler all over again and we both enjoyed them like bagpuss and quite a few of the others but as we were saying earlier it's remembered so much better than something like noah and nelly in the skylark well who was your favorite one well mine was toba maury primarily mm. because he had the car door as his workshop door and for some oh, reason i thought it? that was brilliant i'm not sure now i'd really have to think about that i was always fascinated by the names because of course they had that thing that a wobble's name is chosen when uncle bulgaria you know looks at a map of the world closes his eyes and you know, basically sticks a pin in. So you end up with Orinoco and Bulgaria and Cholet and all these names of places. I'm not sure. that One of them was meant to be a bit thick, wasn't it? Was that Orinoco? I think Tomsk wasn't particularly Tomsk. skilled of thinking either. <laughs> <laughs> skilled in the thinking department. Yes, well, I mean, how skilled do you need to be, really, if basically what you do is go around picking up litter? I mean, that's, you know, it's a very important thing that they do it. But, you know, it, it doesn't take, you know, you don't have to be Einstein, do you? Uncle Bulgaria was the brains of the outfit. I think Madame Cholet did all the cooking as the only woman in the team, obviously. Wasn't there an occasional other woman Womble? I can't Maybe. remember her name, but she would occasionally appear. I think she helped Madame Cholet. But it's like the other three kids in the Magic Round about nobody believed you that they existed uh, was, hardly, was she it? an aunt who came to visit perhaps that's maybe. a bit of a bell and there was the muck wobble who, who was the, the scottish wobble the mac wobble of course what else i always remember you know they used to have the continuity slides on the bbc before programs started where it'd be yes. like a really badly cropped photo for the wobbles because they often used to show it first thing in the morning in the school holidays okay. before that for about seven or eight minutes you know like children friendly records playing over it there'd be this real 
extreme close-up of them at Womble's face, but sort of cropped in the way, so just his staring eyes. Staring That's just terrifying at breakfast yeah. time, really, isn't it, for a young child? <laughs> what were they thinking? Do you still own any branded T-shirts? Because ironically, right now, no. I'm wearing a Captain Marvel one as opposed to Captain America, so I still have I'm one or two. not sure I do. The last one I remember having for a long time was a wedding present, the band. It was white with, I think, the wedding present in red letters and Dave Gedge's face in a sort of monochrome, black and white. I mean, I had that for years and years and years. I probably bought it at a gig. In fact, I'm certain I bought it at a gig. Funnily enough, I think men probably more than women are more likely to have those branded T-shirts. Yes. Yeah. That wouldn't you say? There's quite a lot of, you know, quite often see chaps walking around with, I don't know. You know, like you said, a Marvel type T-shirt or something like that. But women less so. Quite often it's that people don't know what to buy you and get you one. Probably true. So you probably get the Marvel socks and the Marvel T-shirt combo for Christmas, really. <laughs> and if you're really lucky, you might get some Marvel aftershave. Don't give people ideas or that's all. <laughs> Maybe as mosquito repellent, I think. For your next choice, we've got something that I'm hoping I don't get for Christmas or for my birthday or for any time, really. But once upon a time, I thought these were great. any kind of clip could use that was actually a bit of song for hillary by the london jazz four the b-side of their cover of norwegian ward from 1966 hillary why have i put something relating to your name here well so my next choice is something that i think almost everybody had certainly in the 70s and i desperately desperately wanted but it was very hard for me to get make of that what you will children's bedroom doors in the 1970s were almost invariably decorated with an enamel nameplate probably about you know four or five inches long a couple of inches high and they would have the child's names i've been looking back at the ones i can find and you know classic 70s names actually martin's room mary's room richard's room i really wanted one of these but of course you would go and buy them in fact where parents bought them from i have no idea but of course just like you know branded named items for children these days you can go into a shop and all the popular names will be there but if you're called something like hillary and you're the only hillary you've ever met you're the only <laughs> hillary in the school i've met some adult hillary since but as a child i never met another hillary you've got absolutely no chance of getting one of these you couldn't go on the internet and put in the name and get it sent to you a few days later like you can with virtually everything these days so i really really wanted one all my friends had them the boys ones normally had some like a racing car in fact the one i've found is a martin's room one which has got a kind of british racing green car from i don't know probably about the 1940s on it the girls ones normally had a bunch of flowers on imaginatively so mary's room the one i've seen has a bunch of very old-fashioned looking flowers I mean, they look Victorian. And also, interestingly, I found one that's for Richard's room, which seems to have some deer on. I've absolutely no idea. What? Where that came. I know I was, well, maybe Richard did want to go hunting. Maybe this was for the upper class child who, you know, had access to guns and beaters and things like that. You know, several hundred acres. I don't know. I, of course, really, really, really wanted one. And I actually, I think I'd probably got well into my teens and I'd long since thought this was, you know, this was just something I was going to have to live with. I was going to have to go over the trauma of never having a door plate. And then one weekend, my aunt came to visit with a present and she had 
had sourced who knows where from. She'd actually managed to source a nameplate for my door. I was over the moon. But of course, what happened was I very proudly went upstairs, took off the sticky back stuff, stuck it on my door and over the moon with it. Really proud. Some hours later, my mum came upstairs probably to say goodnight and said, oh, oh, you've put it on the door. Well, I hope you've stuck it on properly and sort of pressed it really hard with her hand. So it cracked right down the middle in between the two sticky bits. Devastated. It's genuinely awful and it makes me feel bad about the fact that I, was really... I had one but <laughs> I resented it for two reasons. One, it had a vintage car on. Which yes, a vintage car. I like Martin. Even at that age, you know, I like I like fast cars. I like hot rods and things. <laughs> but the other thing was, it said Timothy's room. Now, I have never been Timothy to oh, anyone apart oh from one grandparent who wouldn't call any of us by anything other than full versions of our names. <laughs> And did she buy it for you? She did. And I have occasionally, occasionally, under certain circumstances, let some women address me as that, normally when they're angry. But (laughs) even at that age, I thought, why can't we have shortened names? What is so wrong with that? But I feel a bit chastened now. Try shortening Hillary. I mean, a few people call you Hills occasionally, which sort of makes me wince slightly. So there we go. What can you do? But no, I was absolutely gutted and years later I had a conversation with my mum about this who have to say you know I mean she's been a wonderful mother in many ways but she denies everything no I didn't (laughs) yes you did it's it's not the sort of thing that you forget as a child you know you live with it for a long time so I'm just about over it now I think it did have the awful flowers on but I I could kind of look through that because I was just so over the moon to have anything with my name on it was such a rare thing in fact it was the only time as a child I can ever remember getting something with my name on because you just couldn't get because you know I think they had slight pretensions with my parents so they didn't want to call me something ordinary they didn't want there to be three people with the same name in my class which is kind of fair enough that does mean I've gone through life being called something completely unusual and of course ever since Hillary Clinton came along I constantly get people spelling it with two L's this is another just cross I have to bear really well I was gonna say I can't imagine what it's like to have you know an unusual name and as a child not be able to get anything with your name on I mean I am at you know I'm at the far end of that spectrum really but I am still on it you were always able to get stuff even if it was your full name but I remember when I you know even when I was in primary school because you know where I grew up it was quite a mixed area already so there were kids with foreign names and school, mm-hmm. you know they're like Camille's and so on so I don't remember what would happen when we get given things with our names on which sometimes did happen in school what happened to those poor kids i can't remember i don't know i don't know i mean i expect they're a lot better off now because as i (laughs) said you can can go on the internet and write in the correct spelling my sister did occasionally get things because she was adrienne or is adrienne which of course is a french name so occasionally somebody had been to france it's very common name in france and and picked something up for her so she did relatively well compared to me but possibly not as well as a tim or a martin or Mary. There's a sort of double-edged follow-on question for that, which is, on the one hand, did you ever get anything else with your name on? But on the other, was it a name so out of phase at that point that you didn't really get anything people made fun of you for it for? Because, you know, with me, it was always things like Tiny Tim, Tiger Tim, Language Uh... Timothy, that poem about the boy who ate soap. Nobody remembers that now, but I hated that with a vengeance. But I'm just 
struggling to think of any Hillary's that in that time frame. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I've rarely met Hillary's my own age. I've come across a few much older and I once had a really odd experience. Well, it was odd for me because obviously you've got an unusual name. It's very rare you meet somebody with the same name. But I used to work in museums and I was once at a meeting full of people who worked in museums and there were two other women in the room called Hillary and we were all just completely didn't know what to say to each other because we never had the experience of meeting two other people with the same name at the same time not only that we all worked in museums which seems really that was very strange I mean if you're quite if you are called Sarah or you know Jim or Mark or whatever this must happen to you now and again but it's never happened to me before I doubt it will ever happen again we were all kind of sort of mutually astonished that we'd met two other people with the same name on the same day in the same kind of sector I know one now who's a bit older than me and I have occasionally come across somebody younger. The thing that happens to me quite often, and I read something that somebody else had written who had an unusual name, which said that quite often people don't seem to be able to compute it. So quite often it's not unusual for me to send an email to somebody and get a reply back saying things like, dear Helen. And you think, how have you misread Hillary as Helen? Or how have you, you've just seen a capital H and something in your head has gone, common name, they must be called Helen. It's happened to me enough times, absolutely not a one-off. It's happened quite often, which just seems really bizarre to me but there we are I just hope they're all nice, pleasant Hillary's because the problem with my name is I have a long list of what I call name traitors where oh, it's bad enough having this name anyway but then you get uh, people like Tim Martin who owns Weatherspoons oh, or yes. Tim Farron who seemed to be a nice guy that yes. suddenly came up with something a little bit homophobic and yes. they all they all seem to be making news of themselves in public mm. and like, why can't you behave? That's frustrating. Well obviously there's Hillary Clinton and people have very mixed feelings about her but I'm not quite sure she's quite as bad as she's been painted by Donald Trump and his friends so I don't think she's quite as bad as that now I don't think I have to say I don't I don't remember meeting any Hillary's and thinking oh good grief good grief that's awful yes I, I suppose I you know I've learned to live with it I've learned to live with it okay we're well, moving on to your next choice now and speaking of extraneous owls I mean I don't think one is going to come up in this but it's all about spelling in a way anyway you've probably got no idea what I'm talking about so here's a clip Nancy the nanny goat lived north of Nantucket Nancy had a pet a nice nightingale I am a nightingale now, Nancy was a nincompoop because around her neck she wore a narrow napkin. One night in November at 9.09, she got a notion to visit a nutty nanny goat farm. Numbskull, nitwit, nincompoop were some of the nasty names the other nanny goats called her as she sat nibbling on her nails. The granny nanny goat noticed Nancy and said, Nancy, don't be a ninny, never nibble on your nails. Nancy became nervous. She took off the narrow napkin and put on a nifty necklace. Instead of nibbling her nails, she started to notice noodles. Granny Nanny Goat noticed Nancy and said, Nanny goats who nibble on their nails and notice noodles are nutty. This story of Nancy the Nanny Goat was brought to you by the letter N. Okay, that was Sesame Street's Nancy the Nanny Goat. And yes, that is the theme for Mary Mungo and Midge behind that alliterative narration. But that isn't even the most confusing thing that Sesame Street foisted on us. Hillary, what am I misspelling here? Well, I'm not really so much, you know, confused as I'm just kind of appalled by this, really. Is that... (laughs) 
When I was growing up in Britain, speaking English, 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 British English, not American English, and you were learning to spell, one of the words that you often came across to help you learn the letter K was the word curb, K-E-R-B. This is the name for that little bit between the pavement and the street. And that is K for curb. Now, there is also the word curb, C-U-R-B, which of course means something entirely different, to stop something, to prevent something that kind of thing. Suddenly, in the last couple of years, the word curb with a K has been replaced in Britain, even by the BBC, God help us, with the word curb C-U-R-B. When did this happen? Why did it happen? What is going on? I'm absolutely, I'm really, well, words fail me. I'm kind of disgusted, actually. Also, I mean, what is happening to kids these days when they're learning to spell, when they're learning the words? Because you have to have one of those books with a, you know, a page for every letter and a picture for every letter. And normally the picture would be in the shape of the letter. And when you got to K, almost invariably, because there aren't that many words in the English language that begin with K, that you can get a nice you know visual noun from the k would be probably you know a leg and a foot walking off a curb into the street and the leg of the foot would make the k shape makes perfect sense doesn't it but suddenly i've seen it all the time i keep thinking am i reading something in american and then i'm realizing no this is a british newspaper or this is the bbc spelling curb which has a k c-u-r-b well i do think it's a very slow burn thing that i think as i kind of indicated in the clip there does go back to the 70s it goes back to and i can prove this sesame street and star wars because i remember being told off repeatedly for saying trash and garbage which i always (laughs) said instead of you know rubbish which apparently is the, the proper british way to say it but where did those two things come from sesame street you know with oscar the grouch mm-hmm. and also the trash compactor in star wars which is a very early thing i was obsessed with for some reason well, i have no idea about the trash compactor because i think i've seen star wars once about <laughs> 30 years ago i think i saw the second star wars maybe once or twice empire strikes back i don't think i've ever seen any of the others more than like little bits of i have to say my son and husband have watched them all multiple times and well i can always find something else to do frankly <laughs> just just not my thing but i yeah i think i accept that i think you probably watch more itv as a child than i did i don't know if our television set actually could get itv because i do remember it was basically always on bbc one or two and i think i only even discovered tis was by complete accident i think one day i must have switched the television on and fiddled with the channels because i was always watching the bbc show multicolored swap shop of course so sesame street i think was on itv wasn't it i do remember a bit of hartley hair i think that might have been on itv at lunch times do you remember hartley hair i do from pipkins yes but again they went to great pains to use you know proper english and it was the case in those days that you were told that is wrong that's a version of america that the thing i remember being really confused by was you ever see any american comics when you're growing up where it had adverts for things like you know you send off on novelties like sea monkeys is the obvious one things like funny richard nixon buzzer you never know when it'll do watergate next it's like, but there was always arrow through t-h-r-u head and i remember looking at it thinking is that like a funny oh. joke spelling like okay. i well, didn't I mean, realize it was just, how they just... actually spell it yes well I, I guess so i guess so i mean and of course in as somebody who's worked you know i worked for a long time in marketing and you know producing print materials and writing for print materials and copywriting and you know you're often looking for a way to fit in the text 
the message into a very small space. So you can see why, particularly in comics, where you've got those tiny little side strips, those tiny little nibs, as they're often called. And actually, you know, the advertiser is paying for that space and they're paying by the centimetre or by the inch. You know, they want to get the message across so you can see why they would become common. I do know, I mean, there are lots of words that we think of as American, which are actually British originally. So if the word like quit is in Pride and Prejudice. Jane Austen talks about people quitting a room, but it's one of those words that went over to America when British people went to found America, is not quite the phrase really, went to America. There were some people already there, I believe, and took some of those words with them. And now they've sort of come back and get across the pond, back to Britain, and we view them as Americanisms. But yeah, definitely, I curb curb spelt with a k is you know british english and american which are, are definitely two different languages and of course we you know language the meaning of words does change all the time but i don't think we should be changing the spellings well part of the problem is now that we do live in the world where people will for some reason they will never admit when they've been wrong about something oh no there is no not even backtracking they just won't back down you know on the occasions when i've got a fact wrong about something i feel terrible about it you know i do <laughs> Actually, yes, and you apologise. <laughs> yeah, I write something new to, you know, kind of make a fact of the thing. Oh, I've since found this out. Yes, and I'm actually going to be fair here. I know that our current lot do a lot of this. They will say something wrong and then somebody will intercede on their behalf to try and make it look right. But the one that I really remember, because it was so early on, was Gordon Brown got some historical detail wrong oh. and somebody from his office tried to edit Wikipedia oh. to reflect what he'd said and it was private. I rumbled them. So it's an endemic thing. And it is. No wonder people will use the wrong words and then not accept that they've used the wrong words or the wrong spelling. And I think the great irony is we've got we're in a global world, of course, and of course we've got the internet, and of course, you know, American English is the language of the internet. Yet we're sort of in a world where prime ministers and presidents feel they should be apologising for things like slavery hundreds of years ago, and possibly quite rightly. Yet ordinary people get really aerated and don't want to apologise about a tiny little error. <laughs> Isn't it bizarre? It's kind of, you know, a complete disconnect between two different philosophies, really. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If I get something wrong, and particularly, you know, at work, you know, if I, if I get something wrong, I feel terribly bad about it. And yes, very happy to apologise. Although it's amazing. It's amazing how often people get really aerated and really upset about something really tiny. I do get very upset about apostrophes, I have to say. Obviously, you might have guessed that. The lack of ability to use an apostrophe does wind me up terribly cause, because actually they are quite important because they do sentence without apostrophe can mean quite different things so yes I'm probably a bit narky about spelling and apostrophes and grammar in general really incidentally I mean I do wonder if this use of curb with a c on the BBC is a symptom of how BBC is sort of being run down and has far less funding so I'm noticing far more if I look at BBC articles online they never used to have spelling mistakes or grammatical mistakes they used to be absolute exemplars and I'm noticing more and more that they do there's one just today there's an article about the Queen having a visit from a pottery manufacturer, ceramics manufacturer, and the BBC uses the phrase objet d'art but spells it objects d'art, whereas actually it's it's the French O B J T. I know because I got an A for my French O level, and I'd just like to put that out there because I'm really <laughs> proud of that. I can barely speak a word now, but I can I can recognise a word. Well, I'm wondering if we should partially blame Larry David for curb your enthusiasm being so popular that that might have overtaken this spelling. And ironically, Maybe. that would be like the plot of an episode. Larry spells curb with a K and somehow gets into trouble. <laughs> but curb your enthusiasm is the correct spelling. Exactly. That's yes, completely yeah. correct. 
Well, I'm going to have to take your word for it on Star Wars, because, again, <laughs> that's something when my husband and son have seen them all several times and I have no real idea. <laughs> I'm off watching my indie films and uh, <laughs> British independent films and Spanish films. Well, they can carry on with Star Wars and Marvel. It's each to their own, isn't it? OK, well, I'm wondering if you had control of a TV station, you would show some of those independent British and Spanish oh, films. Because yes, absolutely. We're, we're moving on to your next choice now, which is basically predicated on more or less that. Well, what you up to this week, boys? Paul, you're driving me made you ain't getting in don't worry about that oh, Harry, don't, don't worry what you up to we're giving you a break this week we're fed up trying to break him we're going on holiday pitching to spain you don't do it like that you've got to use your thumb look you go like that look yeah see big thumb get the biggest thumb yeah. you can go really go look this one now look you're going to spain yeah. lovely OK, that was Steve Steen and Jim Sweeney sneaking into Thames Television for another edition of CBTV. I remember this so fondly. Hilary, what was it? Oh, well, I remember it really fondly, too. I absolutely loved it. And again, it's something that seems to have been wiped from the collective memory. So CBTV was on ITV in the afternoons when you came in from school. I was probably a little bit old for it, actually. I was probably about 11 or 12 when it was on. But what I really love for Jim Sweeney and Steve Steen, two comedians, who actually were hugely influential on the impro circuit and responsible for a lot of the comedy we see now. But going back to CBTV itself, yeah, the conceit was it was a sort of pirate TV station and they were meant to be filming it from the boiler room at Teddington Studios. <laughs> so as in your clip, every week they had to sneak past the security guard to get in because they weren't really supposed to be there. They weren't really supposed to be making a television programme and broadcasting it. They were just like the pirate radio stations. They were not behaving properly really and they were undercutting what ITV should have been doing but Jim Sweeney and Steve Steen I'm absolutely hilarious and I can actually barely remember anything else about the program when I look back I discover that Mike Smith and Annika Rice were on it don't remember them at all they used to come down the pipe into the studio that's what I mainly remember about them no absolutely not I've got no memory of them being in it at all I had to go on YouTube and look at some clips and to sort of you know believe it myself and this I think was before they were on you know before they became big names so yes one of the very best bits was at the beginning when Jim and Steve had to sneak past the security guard every week who was played by an actor called Harry Fielder I think Harry Fielder yes Harry yeah, Fielder I'll come back to him in a minute okay and of course he was obviously he was meant to be a little bit dim so they had all kinds of tricks for getting past him so there's one episode where it opens with before the credits you'd always see this Jim and Steve sat on a wall with Harry in the middle Jim's got a big book saying magic book in big letters on the front obviously so we know what it is oh I've got a magic book you know I can make Steve disappear. Oh, go on then, says Harry. Well, OK, close your eyes and I'll say the magic words. So Harry, the security guard, closes his eyes and Jim says, the magic words are, CBTV is a show for me. Of course, while Harry's got his eyes closed, Steve runs off, mugs at the camera, hand over his mouth, dashes off. Security guard opens his eyes. Oh, it works. He's gone. <laughs> Could I have a go? Oh, yes, says Jim. <laughs> Gives him the book closes his eyes CBTV's the show for me Jim runs off mugs at the camera hand over his mouth and then finally of course I wonder if it'll work on myself closes his eyes CBTV's the show for me poof disappears in a puff of smoke and the ghostly voice is oh where am I what's going on 
I mean, just so silly. And actually coming from the fact that Jim and Steve had been doing impro on the London stage, I think particularly at the Donmar Warehouse, and amongst the first people to do it, before the Paul Mertens came along, before Who's Lining Anyway came along, before the Comedy Store, before all of that, they really pioneered this in the late 70s. And they used all these great tricks and this visual comedy in terms of, you know, the movement and the facial expressions. So, I mean, they had some great ruses. I like the one where sort of Rolls-Royce turns up and Harry's, oh, hello, sir, can I help you? And an arm sort of reaches out with the big red book, which, of course, anybody from the 70s and 80s knows is this is your life. Harry thinks, fantastic, this is your life. Reaches out to shake the hand that gave him the book and it's a a false hand just waving in the air. (laughs) Rolls dries off. Jim and Steve run out again, do their little kind of mime of running off and then actually dash away. Little cartoon kind of mime. And very, very silly things. You know, a gang of goats sort of roll up and Jim and Sweeney are dressed in, you know, completely unrealistic goat costumes and just sneak in with the goats and run up the stairs to the boiler room. It was silly. It was imaginative. It was very visual. I loved it. I loved it. But as I said, I can remember barely anything else about the programme other than Jim and Steve then sitting in the boiler room. And I know they had various props. So every week out, they'd get the hottie, hottie bottle or the hottie bottler, which was a hot water bottle. Why they would it? Well, I suppose it was in a boiler room. Would you need a hot water bottle in the boiler room? He knows what. And I, ca- I can't look at a hot water bottle without thinking of it as a hottie bottle or a hottie botty or whatever it was they called it. Something really strange. Well, I'll come back to Steve Steen and Jim Sweeney in a second, but Harry Fielder, sadly yes. no longer with us, but oh, it's a very strange thing. This was about 10 years ago, where because he was a very prolific bit part player. He's in mm. all, he was in everything, basically, from on the buses to the singing detective. And okay. what happened was, on a sort of archive TV forum, somebody started a thread saying, who is this guy with this you know, very recognisable face. He's in everything. Posted up some screenshots. And the next reply was from Harry Fielder saying, yeah, that's me. I didn't realise people remembered what I did. Aww. I was thinking of doing a website of all my appearances. Wow. And did. It's still there. It's a wonderful thing. It appears that he was an East End geezer, basically. He was hired as yes. a bodyguard for okay. a movie that was being made somewhere. And something went wrong and he had to play a role. And everyone was like, you're brilliant. So he had this, oh. you know, 40, 50 year career of just doing yes. filling bits on the two Ronnie's I mean, he's things. Always- He's always, I mean, the security guard is a bit of a London geezer, isn't he? You know, he's always a bit like that. And absolutely, you know, he clearly made a whole career out of basically playing the same character, but doing it really well. Well, so he appears to be really well loved as well. I mean, one yeah. thing in particular is, in the 70s in particular, he was a heavy in Doctor Who quite a lot. You know, okay. obviously different characters, but with the same face. But whenever he comes on on the commentaries, Tom Baker is always like, oh, good old H, we're always straight down the pub after filming. <laughs> Oh, excellent. But Steve Steen and Jim Sweeney, maybe this is one of the reasons it's not that well remembered, is that they kind of like came and went quite quickly. Because I remember they were in Hardwick House, the ITV sitcom that got polled in 1987, which people are sick of me mentioning by now. But by the early 90s, they were sort of over. And in fact, on the Have I Got News For You DVD, like when Paul Merton and Hisop do the commentary, and one of the early ones, Steve Steen's a guest, and Paul Merton says, I wonder who pulled out that week. From what I understand, they weren't actually that happy with CBTV I think and felt they were more at home in comedy clubs and in theatre and they did have pretty successful careers on that alternative comedy circuit but this was you know this was I guess late 80s when it still was an alternative comedy circuit I mean you didn't have alternative comics playing the flipping O2 and you know doing national tours and all the rest of it I mean certainly in the early 90s I remember well living where I do in the north there were working men's clubs but they weren't alternative comedy clubs I mean now every town has an alternative comedy club 
it's not that alternative anymore it's the mainstream you know you didn't have tv series made with alternative comedians and that they were in things like whose line is it anyway which ran on friday nights for a very long time they were hugely influential i mean they're they're kind of absolute gods of improv they virtually invented comedy improvisation very sadly jim sweeney has got ms and had to retire from performing so which was a terrible shame but i know he's still writing and he's still active on twitter steve steen i think he wrote a very successful play actually about his ms which i think steve steen performed in that one an award at the edinburgh festival about 1999 i think so and i think steve steen is, is yeah again i think he's still around but yeah i think they were just you know a great comedy partnership like more common wise you know they're reading each other's minds you can see when they do whose line is it anyway they've performed together so long you know they pretty much invented that asking the audience for you know what sort of scene do you want what sort of style do you want it in right let's do it here oh and then we'll change it again in two minutes so they pretty much invented that and so they were doing it so well so actually by the time they're on whose line is it anyway getting things like that they must have known exactly what to do they don't know ex- you can tell when you see them together that they know exactly who's going to start and who's going to play which character and how it's going to roll they were so good together so it's a real shame that we don't see them certainly i think amongst the alternative comedy circuit they're still very well respected and well known it's just because of not doing television really or very much television probably since whose line is it anyway they've sort of fallen from the public's memory which is a real shame well, i think what was really exciting about cbtv which it's just worth mentioning it did actually come out of there was an earlier series called ace report which is a bit kind of a straightforward magazine show yes. whereas this was more the whole concept of it was more jokey but it was that concept was brilliant because not only was it i always loved Thames tv programs where you saw the teddington lock studios because mm. they weren't very big and you yes. know you kind of thought where this is being made that's where the sex pistols were at bill grundy that's where they do rainbow yes. all kinds of things like that it was the idea of somebody hacking into tv at that point felt so remote that yes. you know as to be impossible and then a couple of years later what happened someone in america dressed as max headroom takes over the signal yes. during a football game yes <laughs> and also the other thing is where did the bbc get their little broom cupboard idea exactly from, came along in the late 80s where did they get that idea from i think there's a boiler room at teddington and i think you're absolutely right the itv programs were always very they were always kind of like open about talking about this studio where was the bbc i just you imagine this huge kind of monolithic thing i think and itv was a bit more scratch and of course children's programs did have to meet sort of certain kind of educational criteria and all the rest of it which you know actually they still do it that's another thing we talked about the bbc being run down but you know actually those fantastic children's programs like cbb's which are really well made british programs which actually teach kids a lot i know from my own experience with my son you know they were godsend when he was a toddler and at primary school you know they're going to be really really devastated by what's happening you know potentially to the license fee so yeah it's a real shame but yeah i love the way itv was quite kind of scrapped and that whole boiler room and the, the whole cheekiness of that program was hilarious it was great absolutely loved it okay well i can't really think of any way of getting from there into your last choice so i'm just gonna go ahead with this song that'll be stuck in your head all day now for real country eating here's a meal to make you smile savory birds i resolve they're made country style Birdseye Rissoles, a country-style recipe for country-size appetites. Savory Birdseye Rissoles, they're made country-style. Okay, that was an advert for Birdseye Rissoles, they're made country-style. <laughs> Hillary, you want to talk about the decline of one frozen food and the rise of another? Well, I do really. I have very fond memories of Rissoles, although I've at 
absolutely no idea what was in them and what I was eating. So in this, again, back to the 70s as a child, it was the kind of thing that my mum would serve up with chips or possibly actually with boiled potatoes and a salad. You can probably guess which was my favourite option. But Rissoles, I really rather liked them. I think they were bought frozen, bird's eye. And yes, I've seen the country style advert too. They've got a rather jolly, catchy tune to it, but they just seem to suddenly disappear. And it was many years later when I realised I'd not had Rissoles for about 15 years. And I attempted to go to a supermarket, a very large supermarket. It was the same as other supermarkets are available. And no, they just no longer seem to exist. I honestly don't know what was in them. I don't know if they're a precursor of the veggie burger or there was some kind of chopped meat. I honestly have no idea. But they did just disappear. I think my mum bought them in Bijan. There was a Bijan in my little, well, large village, small town where I grew up. It was definitely a precursor of Iceland. We didn't have many supermarkets. We had a co-op. We had a little co-op. We had a little Lipton's and we had a little B-Jam. Now, if you put the three together, they'd probably make up about an eighth of the size of the average British supermarket <laughs> now. I mean, they were tiny. But of course, supermarkets in the 70s, they were still quite a big new thing. The idea you could go into a shop and choose what you wanted, put it in a basket or a trolley even and take it to the desk and pay for it. it was That was quite a new thing, really. It's only the 60s when people stopped going to shops and, you know, the staff had to go and get all the goods for them. So this is quite an exciting thing. And I think B-Jam was, B-Jam was absolutely the specialist in frozen food. I'm not sure if there was any frozen food in the Lipton's or in the co-op. Obviously, we still had a butcher and a greengrocer and a fish stall in those days, all of which have gone, sadly. So, yeah, I was very fond of them. I do remember beef burgers coming around and maybe to some extent the beef burger, you know, replaced the Rissoles. But the other thing that seemed to appear as Rissoles declined was quiche. And this was definitely, well, in my memory, a new invention of the 80s and a bit of an odd invention, actually, because I've never really liked quiche. It's kind of a bit mushy and bleh, and give me a Rissol any day, really. But I do remember my mum making egg and bacon pie, which was served hot. And when I first came across quiche, which is generally, I think, served cold, thinking, what is the difference and why is this quiche? <laughs> and that was egg and bacon pie, because they're pretty much the same thing, aren't they? Or is this just me? No, I'd say it's similar. And I do remember quiche feeling like it. I mean, somebody's obviously going to point out that, you know, the invention of the quiche goes back to... 1247 and <laughs> Ian Keith, but I remember it feeling like a new thing, like the kind of sort of thing that the modern characters in the screen one play would have. You know, that sort of thing. Yes. But I also yes. remember sort of when I was about 14, 15, they were associated with, you know, you used to get those vegetarian cafes that weren't actually vegetarian that have meat in things. Well, if it's just ham, it doesn't really count. You know, it's like the French. I mean, I'm not vegetarian, but if you go to France and you're a veggie and they'll, they'll put ham on your pizza and you'll say, I'm a vegetarian, they'll say, but this isn't meat, this is just have. I think that's exactly the logic that they have. But yeah, it was those sort of, you know, the cafes that would be, you know, considered a bit suspicious, hippie by respectable Mm. middle class parents. And I always associated quiche with places like that. And it slowly became a more regular option. As for Rissoles, I don't think I really remember having them. The main reason I remember the word is that in the Blackadder the Third with Mossop and Kimrick, the actors, when they're outlining their play, the Bordwick Mistakes for a plot against the prince, they mentioned making rissoles out of the servants. Yes, I remember I think thinking, they do. So, what are rissoles? Like, that, well, there we go then. It bothered me more than something in Blackadder should have done. Chocolate 
chopped servants, clearly. <laughs> Perhaps that's how it started. You know, I fear for the children of today because I'm the average teenager. They've never heard of Rissoles, let alone eaten a Rissole. I feel really sorry for them. And on quiche, I mean, bearing in mind that I think it's a kind of horrible aberration, am I allowed to blame Thatcher? This was the height of the 80s. It's kind of a bit of a yuppie-fied egg and bacon pie, I think. I suspect it may have something to do with that, really. Also, it would be very influencer today, wouldn't it? It would be, yeah. I mean, I'm not really into these kind of Instagram influencers. I'm, I'm too old, basically. But yes, yeah, these kind of weird, weird foods that just kind of seem to appear from nowhere. And of course, these days, they don't just appear from nowhere. Actually, they're massive kind of marketing campaigns by international food brands getting us to eat X, Y and Z and making us decide that this has become an essential like, I don't know, beef jerky. You know, I went to America 20 years ago and there was beef jerky. Now it's kind of everywhere here. And what else do we have to have now? Oh, these weird coffees with weird flavours and vast amounts of cream and just odd, odd, odd things. I'm sure there's plenty of others that people seem to think of as essential. And I just think of really, really odd and weird, frankly. But then I drink black coffee and I think if you have milk and sugar, you're a bit of a wimp, really. So I would fully agree with that, to be honest with you. (laughs) Would you swap back, though, and have Rissoles replace quiche? Oh, yes. Like a shot. Yeah. Quiche for me is, I mean, you go to a buffet in this quiche and I just think, show me the sausage rolls, show me the cocktail sausages, possibly show me the chicken drumsticks, you know, although they're a bit awkward to eat at a buffet, especially if you're trying to handle a glass of wine at the same time. But I don't often get invited to buffets. There may be a reason for that. Because you're always looking for the rissoles. That's I'm, always, I'm always wondering where the rissoles are. Yeah. Although I do think rissoles should be served hot. So it'd have to be a hot buffet. I think I'm going to go away and see if I can find a recipe and make some myself. I'm not into sourdough. I don't have a bread maker. So maybe I should be spending a bit of this weekend investigating rissoles. I'm hoping that somebody listening is going to contact you with a foolproof rissole recipe and it's going to become a staple in our house and we can probably have it every Thursday with chips. I was going to say, if anyone listening is inspired to make their own rissoles, please do, but don't send any in to me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think you'd want them posted. Well, actually, you can send them in if you sort of write Hillary on them in food colouring and you can nail them to your bedroom door. (laughs) As long as you spell it properly. (laughs) Hillary, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Well, thank you. I've had a ball. Can't help thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers expert. More details, timworthington.org.